0: The book of Hebrews is one of the most challenging and substantial books in the New Testament. There are a few things that we think are helpful to keep in mind as we engage with the author's message. First, while we don't know for sure who wrote it, we learn early on that he had a first-hand relationship with Jesus' disciples. And so the author's message is based on Jesus' teachings. And second, even though we don't know exactly who he's writing to, the intense and deep connection to Old Testament stories about Abraham and Moses and the discussion of covenants and roles of priests and sacrifices suggests that the original audience had a working knowledge of Jewish customs and beliefs. Then moreover, the content of the letter suggests that they had left these old ways behind to follow Jesus. And third, as a result of following Jesus, they ended up facing social pressure and hostility from their Jewish community, and also found themselves outside of the broader community and culture. In a collectivist society, being isolated and alone or in a small group without much support, it put them in a vulnerable position, facing intense pressure. Many of them were starting to revert back to their Jewish practices and traditions. Some had already abandoned Jesus entirely and others were drifting in that direction. More than a letter, the author writes a sermon that bounces back and forth between explaining certain ideas and encouraging those reading to keep going, to keep following Jesus. The encouragement takes different forms, including some intense and scary warnings, but through it all, the author reminds them and us that Jesus is superior in every way and worth following. It is a clear and compelling vision for following Jesus that we're excited to explore with you in this series. So late February, 1980,
1: I was in a van coming down the mountain, after a full day of skiing at Copper Mountain. And on the radio was a hockey game. It was actually the semifinals of the Olympics. The United States versus the Soviet Union. Uh, The uh, amateurs from America were given Little to no chance to actually win this game. Um, the red machine, the Soviets had won um, the last four straight Olympic gold medals, five of the last six, and they'd just beat the United States 12, or 10 to three in an exhibition a couple weeks before that. But as a 12-year-old riding in that van through the snow and the dark, I was riveted. Just before the game, head coach Herb Brooks looked his players in the eye. And he said to them, great moments are born from great opportunity. And that's what you have here tonight, boys. One game. If we played them ten times, they might win nine. But not tonight. Tonight, we skate with them. Tonight, we stay with them. And we shut them down. Because we can. Tonight, we are the greatest hockey team in the world. You were born to be hockey players. Every one of you. And you were meant to be here tonight. This is your time. Their time is done. It's over. This is your time. Cue the music. Cue the chills. like Cue the miracle on ice. Fantastic movie. This is where we find ourselves this morning as we're skating to the end of the book of Hebrews. The author has laid out his case for Jesus. The superiority of his promise, the completeness of his relationship and his roles as God's son and our savior, our advocate, our leader. The supremacy of his way and his truth. Now the author looks his listeners in the eye. He looks at us and he says, it's time to respond. It's time to run our race and show the world what his greatness looks like. You were chosen for this moment. This is your time. The author of Hebrews has just reminded his readers in the chapter before, in chapter 11, of some of their Jewish ancestors who had lived amazing lives of faith. And if you grew up going to a church or they had a Sunday school and you grew up in Sunday school, you've probably heard of some of these people, and heard some of their stories. Moses, Noah, Abraham. By putting their trust in God, God's absolute goodness and faithfulness to his people is revealed to the world. After this, the author begins chapter 12 with these words. He says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, these people who live these great lives of faith, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Yes, let's go, right? Okay, maybe not yet. You don't look quite ready, you don't look convinced. Maybe these words don't fall the same for us as they did for the Hebrews. But I think we spent a little bit of time this morning. They just might. In fact, we might see that the author isn't just trying to pump us up, but he's actually laying the groundwork of of describing for us how we can build a life of faith like those heroes of old, a life of faith that has real power. And he lists four practical things for us to do in order to build this kind of faith. He tells us we should build on something, we should throw off something, keep on doing something and focus on something. Let's start with building on something. He says build on a foundation of faith and faithfulness. A couple of years ago I would drive to Iowa City on Saturday mornings to run a camera for Iowa football games and they were being played in pretty much an empty stadium other than a few parents or family members and a lot of cardboard cutouts of fans. It's COVID, right? And it was eerie, and it was silence. It was just not right. I can only imagine what it must have been like for those players who are used to playing in front of 70,000 fans, right, who are cheering them on, supporting them, telling them, fight, 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 till the walls and rafters ring, all that stuff. And the author of Hebrews encourages us, you know, when we enter into a life of faith, we're not going into an empty stadium, But we're walking into a world that's actually surrounded, where we're surrounded and supported by all of these people who have gone before us and demonstrated lives of faith. And again, he points to these people like Noah. Noah had never seen rain. He had no idea what a flood was when he was warned about a coming flood. So he didn't walk by sight, but he walked by faith and built an ark to save his family. When God called Abram, he had no idea where God was leading him. There was no map. There was no picture of this place where God was taking him. So Abraham followed him by faith. He trusted him and went where God led him. And he ended up inheriting God's promised land. By faith, his wife Sarah, way past the age of having children, and yet by faith, she not only gives birth to a child, but she gives birth to an entire nation of people. The author says, these and others are cheering you on. They know what it's like to trust God. And when we look at their stories, we can see what it looks like as well. We can see how hard it can be to walk in faith at times. We can see how long it must feel and how long it does feel to wait for God to do something when we need him to move. We see their setbacks and their failures. We know that they stumbled and they fell and they battled questions and doubts in their, of their own. They had negative voices in their heads. They faced opposition from others and yet they clung to their faith in God and it was promised that he had something better for them. And through their imperfect faith, they and others got to witness the perfect faithfulness of God. Jacob and Joseph and Rahab and David and all the prophets in the Old Testament, they all witnessed the power of God. And they were also all looking forward still to something better when they died. But their lives tell a story. They give a testimony to God's goodness and to his power in and through their lives as they persevered in faith. And Jesus told his followers, he said, I want you to be my witnesses. These stories shed some light on what it looks like to be a witness. They remind us that our lives can tell a story of God at work also. Their stories encourage us to build on their foundation of faith and join them as witnesses of God's ongoing work in our world. One of the ways we do this is by knowing and learning from these stories, right? looking at their lives and seeing how they manage to keep going. But another way is by identifying some faith mentors around us, people who are a little further down the road than we are in their journey of faith, who have maybe seen God at work in ways that we haven't yet. They can help us live a life of faith. As they share their struggles and their experience, their failures, as well as how they've experienced God's faithfulness, they can cast vision for us. Their friendship can support us. For some of you that might be a grandparent, or a parent, or a brother, or a sister, or friend. Hopefully it's it's multiple people. I know I've had the privilege of having a number of great mentors in my life. and One of them is Dave Bartlett. One of the things that makes Dave Bartlett so great at being a mentor is so many years of living his life of faith, right? He's been around a long time. (laughs) He's got a lot of experience. The other thing he does though is he is able to ask really great questions because of all of this experience. He has great insight. He's also very humble, so he's willing to share his struggles and his own failures with me. He has, ability, he has an ability to listen without judgment, to allow me to have my own journey while he encourages me to keep going. And he has a reluctant willingness to challenge me when I ask him to. He can help me figure out next steps when I'm uncertain of what's the next step to take. And his friendship just encourages me. Who does this for you? Who inspires you? Who's in your cloud of witnesses? And maybe just as important, who are you doing this for? I think having a faith mentor is vital to us growing our own faith. And it's amazing how much Our vision of God's goodness and faithfulness can grow when we experience someone who not only trusts God, but who loves us really well. It's even more powerful when that person is right in our circle of friends or a family member. I want to encourage you to think about who that might be in your life. Identify a mentor. Invite them to lunch in the next few weeks. Ask them some questions about their faith journey. And build on the foundation of their faithfulness and God's. Another thing that a faith mentor can do for us is they can help us to throw off the stuff that gets in our way. This is what the author says, it says the, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Two different things there there's an everything, and there's the sin. He says, get rid of all of it. Anything that keeps you from trusting and following Jesus. When this letter was written, um, Hebrews who would compete in games, the athletes, they didn't have like spandex or under armor. So when they'd throw off their robes that were hindering them, they were running naked. Don't let that image linger too long. I've run some road races. I've never seen anybody running naked. But occasionally I'll see a firefighter out there dressed in full gear, running a 5K or a 10K, all the the boots, the the heavy coat and pants, the helmet. And you're like, what are they doing? And I think the author of Hebrews is telling us, that's what some of you look like as you're running your faith. You're carrying all this extra stuff. He says, throw it off. If you don't need it, if it's not helpful, if it's getting in your way, get rid of it. And for the Hebrews, part of this meant getting rid of... A lot of religious practices and traditions and rules that they'd grown up with. And these beliefs, these customs had been seared into their consciences, into their way of life through generation after generation after generation of practice. And Jesus comes along and he says, that whole system, that whole way of doing things, that's gone, that's done, it's over, leave it in the past. I've come with a new way and it's a better way. I want you to trust my sacrifice. I want you to build your life on your relationship with me. I've had friends who visit Orchard at times and they come in and they see people drinking their coffee and sitting in their seats and they experience what's going on in this room and I'll hear from them later that week and say, no, can't do it. Can't do it, that's that's not church. That's not the church I grew up with anyway. Hard for them to leave that old way behind. For the Hebrews, it was much more than, you know, something like coffee in a service or a different kind of music. It was even more than their beliefs and their traditions, but they were leaving behind family members and close friends who often were accusing them of being sacrilegious and rejecting God because they were turning to Jesus. And when they would leave that community, just like we said in the video... They weren't entering into a new big community that was full of support for them necessarily. So many of them lost their jobs and lost their homes, lost all support. and left them extremely vulnerable. Just think about how hard this must have been for them. So it's no wonder it was just a matter of time before some of them started turning back. Or they started trying to bring some of those traditions and those rules with them into this new thing of following Jesus. And the writer says, do not let that happen. Don't mix the old with the new. If you're going to go back to the old way of doing things, the old way of following the law, you're going to have to follow all 600 plus rules of the law. You don't want to do that. The old way is done. It's over, throw it off. Makes me wonder what gets in our way of following Jesus today. What traditions or rules are obstacles for us when it comes to following Jesus? Are there beliefs or fears, experiences, hurts, or narratives that are going on in your life that make it harder to trust God and follow Jesus? A friend of mine texted me a couple weeks ago and he said that he'd internalized a message when he was growing up in his home that said you have to be positive always. If he would ever share anything uncomfortable or slightly negative, a feeling or experience, um, he said that he felt like the message was you're being too sensitive. And this has caused all kinds of problems in his relationships, especially his relationship in his marriage. As he struggled to be honest and be vulnerable with his wife, it's also caused challenges in his relationship with God and with himself, and it's led to a lot of destructive behaviors. One of the narratives I grew up with uh, in my church was that God is angry with me, and therefore he's distant and unavailable. I've talked about this before, and I've had to battle this for years, and at times it still holds me back in my relationship with God. I wonder what narratives or messages you've internalized that hold you back from God. The writer in Hebrews implores us throw it off. Don't let any of that stuff stop you from running the race. I know it's easier said than done, super hard to let go of this stuff. One of the ways we can do this, other than having a mentor who can help us with this, is to actually stop and think about what these things are that get in our way. And when I say think, I mean to actually take time to listen to what these narratives and these voices are telling us and asking ourselves, are these things true? Are they helpful? Or are they hindering us? Are they inspiring? Are they necessary? Or is it... We don't need to listen to that anymore. Are they kind? And if they aren't any of these things, we need to let them go. And not only let them go, but we need to replace them with what God's telling us. Have other friends who can tell us something that is more inspiring from God's word, something that is necessary and helpful or kind. And when we struggle to do this on our own, we have to have friends who can help us do this. And throw off the stuff that's getting in our way. Then the writer says, Whatever you do, whatever you do, don't stop running. It's like he knows how hard this is, right? How hard it is to throw off stuff that we used to believe or how we used to practice or the sin that's getting in our way. It can take a while. And trying and failing and trying again and failing again, it can be so exhausting. But he says, don't let that take you out of the race. Keep on running with grace. Keep going, no matter what. It's March Madness, so in the words of Jimmy Valvano, don't give up, don't ever give up. And the writer of Hebrews actually goes on and offers us a couple of things to help us with this. The next couple of verses, he says this, he says, in your struggle against sin, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. I have to admit when I first read these words out loud, they seemed a little bit harsh to me. Probably had something to do with that narrative I had internalized about God being angry with me. It's like he was saying, suck it up, buttercup. You haven't suffered as much as Jesus yet. And besides, you're just getting what you deserve for your sin. Deal with it. I didn't find that particularly helpful. True, maybe, not necessarily helpful, right? So I looked a little bit deeper. and What the author is actually offering is a new perspective on God's discipline. See, the word he uses for discipline doesn't mean punishment. It actually means training. God isn't punishing us when we experience unpleasant things. Suffering and hardship are not God's anger towards us. He already emptied his anger out on the cross. God doesn't reject his children God loves his children perfectly, and that includes giving us opportunities to train and grow and develop our faith, which, by the way, gives us the chance to witness his power and his goodness. It's another form of grace to help us learn to trust him more and make our faith a source of power and hope for us and others around us. Sometimes bad things happen that have nothing to do with discipline and training. They just happen because we are part of a broken world. But because God loves us perfectly, he promises to take even those things and use them for our own good. When we allow God's grace to work in us, we open up ourselves to the chance for our lives to tell a story of his goodness. I wanna encourage you, let whatever test of faith you might be experiencing right now move you towards Jesus so that you can experience his life and his presence in your own the writer goes on to say that uh, don't let God's discipline discourage you because he says remember God is treating you as his own child whom he loves Just like any good parent, any good mom or dad disciplines their child so that their child can have the best possible chance of living the best life. Are some of our hardships and struggles brought on by our our struggle with sin? Yeah. Do we always resist sin to the best of our ability? I don't. Sometimes I need reminders about how serious sin is. And I can certainly learn to give more effort toward overcoming temptations and selfish desires. But the effort required isn't to just try harder. The effort God is looking for is for us to turn and run to him for help. At the end of this chapter, the author actually tells us, when you, start, when you struggle, don't run away from God. Don't refuse God, don't reject God, but run to him for help. And he uses this great metaphor of these two mountains to say, you're not running to this mountain, to this God of gloom and doom and holy wrath, but you're running to this mountain of life, this God of grace. The same grace that brings us forgiveness and freedom from sin supplies us with the power to persevere to get back up and go again. His grace is what fuels us to partner with him and keep on running with grace. Grace is opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. Living a life of faith requires us to exert some effort in running to Jesus for help. The author says, build on the foundation of faithfulness, throw off the stuff that gets in the way, keep on running with grace, and then he says, do it all by focusing on Jesus. He says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the pioneer, the perfecter of our faith. Consider him who endured such opposition so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. It's a recurring theme in the Bible, happens over and over again. Paul actually tells people all the time in the churches that he was serving hey don't fixate on all the little hardships and the things that you're experiencing these things are temporary they're not going to last forever they're not a huge deal especially compared to the life that God is calling you into Jesus said you're going to have some trouble expect it but take heart I've overcome this world and so will you so keep your eyes on me keep your eyes on things above on the better that Jesus is calling you to how do we do this? How do we focus on Jesus, keep our eyes fixed there? When the writer says, consider him, what he's saying is meditate on Jesus' goodness. Meditate on his life and on his teachings. Do it regularly. Part of that is studying the way Jesus lived, how he stayed connected to his father, loved his father with with holy obedience and with radical sacrificial love with others. Consider also the opposition his life stirred up and what it took for him to practice self-control in the midst of all that, to forgive and love his enemies, something he couldn't do without his father's help. We can't do it either. Soak in the love that he demonstrated for us by taking our place and suffering the humiliation of the cross, overcoming sin and death. Consider his gift of the Holy Spirit who fills us with that same resurrection power. Remember that Jesus is advocating on our behalf with God. Don't just consider Jesus abstractly, but spend time with him. Allow his grace and his work to fill you, to fill you with his love with his spirit so that you can continue to run your life of faith. And then stay close to him. Put your complete trust in him. I can see the author of Hebrews up on this stage. He's pacing in front of us. And outside there's this huge arena or stadium just filled with people waiting for us, they're starting to make a little noise they're getting a little restless like you guys are about to finish just like Herb Brooks the author steps up and he looks at us in the eyes and he says great moments are born from great opportunity and that's what we have here in Jesus that's what he gives us today one race one faith If we stayed in our old ways, in our old religious systems, not a chance. That way is done. The power of sin is over. Today, we run with Jesus. Today, we throw off everything else and we fix our eyes on him. Today, we focus on Jesus. We've been chosen by him. You are his brothers and his sisters. God is your father, every one of you. And this is your time. Will you pray with me? Father, as we head into some worship and then we start to look at the week ahead and Holy Week, how we remember how your son persevered for us. We remember his relationship with you and that by going to the cross and dying for our sins and making that sacrifice, he opened up the way for us to have that same relationship with you that allows us to persevere through the challenges this world throws at us, that helps us to overcome the sin and the temptations that try to drag us back Help us to just keep going and keep growing. God, this week, help us to spend some time reflecting on you and the life that you have ahead for us, the promises to remember your faithfulness and your goodness and the power that you demonstrated to so many people before us. Help us to find those people in our lives, to surround us with people who can help us keep going when things are hard. And help us to find rest in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.